This morning we come together to study the Word of God. We are studying through the Epistle to the Ephesians, so you may want to open your Bible with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Before we begin our study of God's Word, let's just go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we are so thankful, so grateful for all that you have provided for us that you have told us in your word, and especially here in this passage of Ephesians, who we are in Christ, this new identity that we have as new creatures in Christ, that we, are, have, that we have been raised with Christ, we have been uh, seated together with him in the heavenlies. We are a work of art, a masterpiece of your creation, to be a witness and a testimony throughout not only our lives on this earth, but that you will set us up as trophies of your grace throughout all eternity. Now, Father, we pray that as we, as we study, as we read, as we reflect upon your word, that you will drive home these truths in our lives, that we may get, gain an even greater understanding of who we are as members of Christ's church, members of his body and that we have a tremendous uh, responsibility, but we've been given incredible assets and blessings in order to carry out our roles and responsibilities here in this church age. And for that, we are so grateful. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. As we move forward, I overlooked uh, taking up the offering, since we don't have uh, anyone here to pass the plate. Just a reminder that... Uh, God has been faithful in providing for this congregation down through the years. And when we give, we give as unto the Lord. It is not, uh, we do not give in order to manipulate God or to get blessings from Him or anything like that, but we give in order to glorify Him, to support the teaching of His Word, and to, to support this local church. And so you can either send in a check to the church, which many people have done, or you can go to the PayPal button that is on the westhoustonbiblechurch.org website, and you can give a contribution that way. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, but he who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Nor is there salvation in any other. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. Because we know that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in him and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified." It's not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Let's open our scriptures, if you haven't already, to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. We live in a world today where there is a lot of confusion about the nature of the church. This really isn't anything new. 
There has been confusion about the nature of the church since the last apostle died, which was the apostle John in the mid-90s at the end of the first century. It is in this particular passage, Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 11, down through the end of chapter 3, that is one of the most central passages in the Scripture for understanding what the nature of the church is. You will often hear people make reference to different things about the church, such as somebody saying, well, they would just get in church, they would be okay. And we talk about uh, church as buildings, and we talk about church as, as denominations and as organizations. But what does the Bible say? We need to understand a definition of the church. What is the church? What does that word mean? To what does it refer? And why do we emphasize the importance of the church? And why do we use it to distinguish this age from the time of uh, Christ's ascension until the end of this age at the rapture? Why do we emphasize that as being so distinctive? We also need to address the question, what is the difference between the visible local church and the universal church, that is the invisible church, the body of Christ, which is composed of all believers throughout this church age, those who are with the Lord and those who are still alive and on this, this earth. And as we study through these new chapters, we're developing really the idea of what uh, what Paul talks about in introduced in Ephesians 2.10, that we are created as a masterpiece. We are created as a work of art. It's uh, poorly translated as that we are created in his workmanship, but the idea is something that is beautiful, something that is distinctive, something actually that is a work of art, and that is how it is described and used in in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. God has made us a work of art and a masterpiece. That applies not just to the church, the universal church, but to every single believer. And we need to understand that significance because by understanding our new identity as new creatures in Christ and as this masterpiece created in Christ Jesus, that should motivate us to to live for him and to serve him in this life. Now, last week we began this study beginning in verse uh, or chapter 2, verse 11, walking our way through the rest of this chapter and chapter 3, just getting a summary, sort of a flyover of what the Apostle Paul says in this section. It is part of the first part of this epistle where Paul is describing all that we have in Christ. This is the wealth or the riches is how it's translated in Scripture, but it's a singular word, so wealth is a better translation. Describing our wealth in Christ, the assets, the the uh, blessings that God has given us from the instant of our salvation. That's the subject of these first three chapters. By understanding who we are in Christ and what we are given in Christ, 
that is the foundation for understanding then how we should live because the second division in this epistle begins with uh, the first verse of chapter 4 goes down to chapter 6 verse 9 and the focus here is on our spiritual walk our life how we live on the basis of who we are and then we come to the last part which is 621 down to 24 uh, or or excuse me, six ten to twenty, which describes the warfare, the warfare of the uh, believer in Christ, those who are in Christ. So we have our wealth, our walk, and our warfare. And then the closing of the epistle is just in the last four verses, verses chapter six, verses twenty one through twenty four. So in the previous lesson, I reviewed again where the first ten verses end. And that's important because it's setting the stage for the next section, for 2.11 down through the end of chapter chapter 3. For we are his work of art. We are his creation. That word created in Christ Jesus is used several times in relation to the word poema, which is translated workmanship. It is a distinctive creation of God and that's what makes it a work of art because everything that God makes is a masterpiece is a work of art is absolute perfection and has a a glorious purpose we are his work of art his masterpiece created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So this is a bit of foreshadowing as well for the second part of the book, which is how we should live, that we should live in these good works. That should characterize our lives. And then we come to the first, the next three verses, which introduce us to the uh, this next section. It's the foundation for the next section. And there we read, Therefore remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus... You who were who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So in these three verses, God, through the Apostle Paul, lays the groundwork for the rest of this section. He introduces the idea that now Gentiles who once were alienated from Israel, they and he's going to characterize them by five phrases in verse two, in, 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 in verse twelve. They were once alienated from Israel. They now have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So he tells them, first of all, reminds them of their past plight. They were once Gentiles in the flesh, once called uncircumcision, which shows that they were not part of the Abrahamic covenant. This plight of those Gentiles is the same plight that every Gentile, in fact, every Jew has today. We are born, as Ephesians 2, one reminds us, dead in our trespasses and sins. And we saw in our study that when we look at Ephesians chapter 4, uh, verse 18, that this spiritual death is alienation from God. And so this is how... 
Paul will further define that in verse 12. He says at that time they were, first of all, without Christ, without Messiah. There are no messianic prophecies given to the Gentiles. They were not going to be the group from whence the Messiah would come. And without Messiah, they had no um, no real hope, which he will get to in, as the fourth point. They were aliens, secondly, from the commonwealth of Israel. That means they were not part of the commonwealth of Israel. They were separate. They were distinct. They did not have the same privileges or same opportunities. And this has always been the way that God has worked with different people. He assigns different people different roles. That doesn't mean one is inherently better than the other. It's just like with a football team or a baseball team. You have different players who are skilled at different positions, and they have different roles on the team, and they learn to perform well in their particular role. So in the Old Testament, God called out a special people, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he gave them a special role. And part of that role was that through them the Messiah would come. The seed of the woman predicted in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. But, but if you were not part of Abraham's physical descent, then there was going to be a difference. It didn't mean that the Gentiles were, were any better than, or worse than the Jews. Many times God says that the Jews were a stubborn and stiff-necked and rebellious people and that he did not choose them because of anything great that he saw in them, but in just because of his grace. So as Gentiles, they're first of all without Messiah. Secondly, they're aliens from the gospel, from the commonwealth of Israel. Third, they are strangers from the covenants of promise. And that refers to the covenants with Abraham, the covenant with uh, the people related to the land covenant, the covenant with David, and the new covenant. They were not part of those covenants. Those covenants were all made between God and Israel, as it specifically states, even the new covenant. A lot of people get confused over the new covenant. The new covenant is not with the church. The new covenant did not begin uh, with the church age. The new covenant, as Jeremiah 31, 31 to 33 specifically states, God said, I am making this covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And when it is quoted in Hebrews 8, it quotes the exact same thing. The writer of Hebrews never says that it is made with the church. The church is a beneficiary of the blessings that God has given Israel and will give Israel in the future under the new covenant, but the blessings are not the same when you list them out. There are similarities, but similarities do not mean identity. For example, you can look at a shrub outside your house, and you can look at a tree. They have a lot of things in common. They have branches, they have leaves, uh, the leaves are green, uh, they need water uh, in order to grow and to sustain their life, but there are certain distinctives. Now, I'm just a layman, not a botanist, I'm sure there are other distinctives, but a shrub does not have a trunk like an oak tree or pine tree or uh, a birch tree, and so that would be one of the obvious distinctives. So similarities don't mean they are the same thing. And so we have to understand that 
that these covenants and the promises of the new covenant are similar to the blessings God gives to church-age believers, but they are not identical. Third, we saw they're strangers from the covenants of promise, and as a result of all of these things, they have no hope. A hope is a confident expectation. Now, there were promises that gave an expectation to Israel, a messianic hope as well, that there would be the Messiah, but that did not, that promise did not go to the Gentiles. Now, Gentiles could be saved in the Old Testament, but they were saved uh, by grace through faith, just as we are in this, uh, in this dispensation. And they understood that there would be a future, a future savior who would save mankind, but they did not have specific revelation given to them. Even though there were many Gentiles saved in the Old Testament, they were still separated from the commonwealth of Israel and the covenants of promise. So as Gentiles, they had no hope. There weren't specific promises or blessings given to them through covenants in the Old Testament. And then last of all, they were without God in the world. Now we'll study all of those when we get into verse 12. Third thing that we see in these three verses is that God tells them of of his solution. He says in verse 13, You who once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. <clears throat> this is true of was true of every Gentile, and in fact, uh, it was true of every Gentile in the Old Testament, and it is true, in fact, for us today. So, in these three points, Paul describes the essence of the creation of this new identity, this new entity called the Church, and that by way of introduction. Um, he, we're going to focus on this to try to understand something about the church before we dive into the details of this passage. So what I want to do to begin with is just a basic introduction to the church called the body of Christ in the Old Testament. So we'll have just a, a few points about this. First of all, we learn that Christ is the head of the church. That means that he is the authority over the church. The Greek word uh, translated head, which is the word kephale, always describes authority in the Scripture. It's not talking about source. It is talking about authority. Christ is the head, the authority over the church. And in Ephesians 1.22, which we've studied already, we read, And he, that's referring to God the Father, He put all things under his, that is, God the Son's, feet. That's a picture of submission and subordination. That God the Father put everything under the feet of Jesus and gave him, that is, God the Father gave God the Son to be head or to be in authority over all things to the church. And then we read, and this is used as an illustration in Ephesians 5.23, where we read, For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church. So this is talking about the authority structure within the home. It's not saying that the husband is the tyrannical dictator over the wife, but that he is the ultimate authority because God is going to hold the husband responsible and accountable for the spiritual welfare of the home. So the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church. 
and he is the Savior of the body. So two things are said there. Christ is the head of the church, the Savior of the body. The body refers to the church as the body of Christ. A second thing we learn is that one purpose of many, but one purpose of the church is to display God's multifaceted wisdom to the angels, both fallen and elect. Now, we learn this from Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10. To the intent that now, that is a now in this church age, the manifold, that is the multifaceted wisdom of God, might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. That is a description of the angelic hierarchy. There is authority structure within the angels. So authority isn't something that has to do with sin. Uh, It has to do with organization, responsibility, and accountability. So that the, the church is a visible demonstration, an exhibit, like an exhibit at a museum or an exhibit in a courtroom to demonstrate to all God's manifold wisdom and especially to the angels. And that takes us back to the idea in Ephesians 2, 7, that in the ages to come, he, meaning God the Father, might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us that is, Jew and Gentile together in Christ Jesus. A third point of introduction is that glory should be given to God in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. And this is Ephesians 3, uh, 3.21, which takes us down towards the Uh, towards the end of chapter 3. To him, that is God the Father, be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. So the first him isn't referring to Christ, it's referring to the Father. Be glory in the church. So the church is to glorify God. That means that we are to demonstrate the importance, the value, the significance of having a personal relationship and walk with God, that that is to change our lives because God has already transformed us into a new creature and we have to learn to walk as a new creature in Christ. So to God the Father be glory in the church, in Christ Jesus, to all generations forever and ever. So we are part of this magnificent organism, this, this magnificent entity called the church, this, this work of art that God has created. We're going to be on display in the heavenlies forever and ever. We are designed to, to be an exhibit, a demonstration to the angels of God's grace and of God's love and of God's, uh, God's wisdom. And so as a result of that, we are to glorify God and to demonstrate in our lives that God is important. That's what glory means. Glory has that idea of something that is heavy, literally, but what it means is something that is, that is significant, important, and of great value. So we show how valuable our relationship to God is, and this will bring glory to God for all generations forever and ever. 
The fourth illustrate, uh, the fourth point by way of introduction is the church is therefore to submit to the authority of Christ. We are to follow Him. We are such rebellious people. We have rebellion sown deeply in our hearts because it's part of the sin nature. And as the Old Testament said, the heart is deceitful and wicked above all things. Who can know it? It is amazing how many times we live our lives thinking we're doing pretty good spiritually and we're just blind to our own sins and blind to our own arrogance and blind to our own rebellion against God. And this happens again and again and again. And I'm not going to use uh, too many illustrations here, but it, it happens to every one of us. There's not one person listening to my voice that isn't at heart still a rebel against God in ways that they can't even imagine. And I hear people, uh, in fact, I was laughing and, and joking with a pastor the other day. We were We were just talking about the fact that God calls the sheep and that's not a compliment. Sheep don't know how to take care of themselves, and they often will be stubborn and want to go in one direction thinking that's the direction of water, and that's why a shepherd, one reason a shepherd will carry a staff is to poke them and prod them and push them and pull them into the right, in the right direction because they think they, they, they know where they're going. And I hear this from many Christians all the time. In fact, it's funny that a pastor will sometimes, as he is working through something he's teaching, will often say, boy, this really fits, and, and you, so-and-so in my church is the, is the picture next to this doctrine in, in, a, in, a, in a theology book or in a dictionary. And so one of two things happens, often, frequently. You come, you teach the passage, after church, that person comes up and goes, oh, that was great, that was great. I sure wish so-and-so were here. They needed to hear it. And, and they're totally blind. They're like the person in James 1 who looks in the mirror of God's Word and doesn't see his own reflection. And, and many of us are that way in certain areas of our life. It applies to every single one of us. The other thing that happens is that you know, oh, man, I've been waiting for this passage. So-and-so really needs to hear it. This is just directed toward the issues in their life, and they're not there. Even the next week they're not there when you can review it and make some of those essential points. But that's in God's hands, not in our hand. We are to submit to the authority of Christ. That is us as believers in the church. That means we need to know his word, which... 1 Corinthians 2.16 says, is the mind of Christ. Fifth point by way of introduction is that Christ loved the church by dying on the cross for the church. He paid the penalty for our sins. He died in our place. Ephesians 5.22 emphasized this in uh, talking to husbands. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. This is one of those verses that husbands don't like to be reminded of. It's one of those verses that husbands will hit a blind spot as they read through Ephesians, that we are to love our wives as Christ loved the church. How did he love the church? He gave himself for her. This is what John 3.16 talks about. God loved the world. Most translations say God so loved the world. Some people 
trying to paraphrase that in English, will say God loved the world so much. That's not what it means in the Greek. It uses a special word there that means God loved the world in this way, in this manner. In other words, the death of Christ on the cross is an exhibit for us of how God loved us. Romans 5.8 says the same thing, but God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. He gave himself for all mankind, but the passage is specifically talking about Christ's love for the church and what he did for the church. The sixth point by way of introduction is also something we'll come to when we get to Ephesians 5, is in verses 5, 26, and 27, Christ sanctifies and cleanses his church by the washing of water by the word to present the church to himself as a glorious church. Ephesians 5.26 says, That he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. Now what's interesting here is that many people will look at this and think of this as the ongoing sanctifying or cleansing work of Christ. And I don't think that's right. The word that is used for washing here is the Greek word luo, which means a, a full bath. That's the word that that Jesus uses once in John chapter 13 when he is uh, washing the feet of the disciples and he comes to Peter and Peter says, Peter says, no, Lord, you're not going to wash my feet. And the word for wash in all of those passages is just the word nipto, a different word for washing, which just means washing hands or washing feet, washing one part of the body but not the whole body. And Jesus says, if you don't let me wash you, you have no role no future inheritance with me doesn't mean he won't be saved. It's just that it will limit his uh, rewards at the judgment seat of Christ. And so then Peter says, well, wash me all over. And he uses that word luo, showing that there's a difference. Jesus says, well, all of you have been cleansed. And he means what the, the significance here is comes out of the illustration from the Old Testament that when a high priest entered into his ministry, he was bathed. And the Greek word that's used in the Septuagint to translate that is the word luo, which means a full bath. That's the word that's used here. Subsequent washings refer to nipto, when the high priest would go into the uh, tabernacle or the temple and he would go to the laver and wash his hands and wash his feet. That's nipto. So luo is used of this complete washing. That only happens at salvation when we are totally or perfectly sanctified in Christ, set apart in him positionally and legally. So that's what this is talking about. Jesus Christ sanctifies us positionally and cleanses us positionally with the washing of the water of his, of the word, which is the gospel. Ephesians 5.27 gives the purpose that he might present her, that is uh, his bride, the church, to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So that tells us it's positional because in this life we're never perfect, we're never without sin. So that's a brief introduction, five basic summary points related to understanding what the church is.
And now I want to move into something a little more specific, and that is what the Bible teaches about the church, the body of Christ, uh, in terms of what Jesus says in Matthew 16:18. Matthew 16:18. Now you might want to look there. It's not necessary, but you might want to look at that passage. It's a very well-known passage where Christ says that on this rock I will build my church. So first thing, the distinctiveness of the church is brought out in Christ's first use of the term, that is the term church, in Matthew 26:18. The word church is never used earlier than that statement of Christ in Matthew 26:18. In fact, the word ecclesia, the Greek word, is only used twice in the four Gospels, both in Matthew. Once in Matthew 20, uh, excuse me, that should be Matthew 16, 18. I don't know why I have 26 typo there. Uh, Matthew 16, 18. And in Matthew 16, 18, he's talking about this future entity that he will build, the church. In Matthew 18, he will use ecclesia again when he's talking to Peter, and Peter is talking about, well, how many times do you have to forgive somebody? And and uh, and Jesus goes through this process that talks about, well, if someone offends you, you go and talk to them privately. If they don't respond, then you go with uh, someone else so there's a witness. And if they still don't respond, then you tell it to the assembly. He's not talking about the church because he's using present tense words, and there's no present church at that time. He's just using the the uh, regular everyday use of assembly, which was also a, a synonym for the synagogue. We'll look at that in more specifics. So the distinctiveness of the church is brought out in this very first use by Jesus in Matthew 16:18, And there he said, And I also say to you, talking to Peter, you are Peter, and on this rock, and when he says this rock, he's really talking about himself. On this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Now, the picture there represents the location where Jesus is in Caesarea uh, Philippi, that this was a huge rock escarpment. They're probably down in this area, these black holes that you see in a few places. Uh, these are entries to caves, and this was thought at that time by the uh, Greeks and other pagans in the area that this was the, these were the gates of Hades, the gates of Sheol. And so Jesus uses this rock as an object lesson. And you can see here is a picture uh, demonstrating that as it, as it looks today. So I want to look at this one phrase that's so important here where Jesus says, I will build my church. In the English, that's five words. In the Greek, it is only four words. It is oikotomeso, I will build. That's the uh, future active indicative of the verb. Mu is the word for my. Then you have an article with the noun, which is very important here because he is not talking about anything, any assembly in general, but some specific one. Uh, usually in Greek, if you're going to use a pronoun like my, 
that will replace the article and still indicate that there's a definitive sense to the noun. But when the article is included along with the pronoun, that shows that there is a specific emphasis on the distinctiveness and uniqueness of the noun. So Jesus says, I will build my church. And this verb, or kodimeo, is a word that means to build something. Literally, it would mean to construct a physical building. And it is applied as a metaphor to construct something in an abstract sense. So you might use this word to talk about building character into somebody. Or it may be in terms of building a philosophical system. That is another sense. It's not physical, but it is a non-literal construction of something. These are the two meanings that are given in the basic Greek lexicons. So if we look at this whole phrase as it's translated in English, there's something significant we can say about each element in this statement. First of all, the verb is a first-person singular. So that means that it is referring to the speaker alone, and in this case, that is Jesus. Jesus is saying that he is the one who will build this church. No one else is going to build this church. The entire operation is the work of Christ. He's the one who saves, and he is the one who sanctifies. He's the one who has authority, and he is going to be the one who builds and develops his church. It's not the pastor. It's not the denomination. It's not a human enterprise that builds the church. It is Christ the head who does that. And Scripture is very clear on the role of the pastor. In John chapter 21, three times Jesus talks to Peter and says, Do you love me, Peter? Peter says, You know, Lord, I love you. And they use different words and synonyms, and I've talked through that before. But then uh, in each, at the end of each one of these three uh, interchanges, Jesus says, either feed my sheep or nourish my little lambs or feed my sheep. And he uses different synonyms again to talk about the fact that it's the role of the pastor, which Peter represents, the leaders in the church, that they are to, their responsibility is to feed, to nourish, to provide spiritual food for the sheep that is the members of the body of Christ. It is the pastor's, the evangelist's responsibility, Paul says in Ephesians 4, 11, and 12, that we are to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. So the pastor, these gifted people in the early church, they had apostles and prophets, and that only applied to the first century. And then for the rest of the church age, you have evangelists and pastors and teachers. What are they supposed to do? They are to equip the saints, Ephesians 4, 11, and 12. They are to feed the sheep in John 21. Nowhere does it say they are to build the church. It is the pastor's job to feed and equip. It is Jesus' job to build his church. But what we find today is that many pastors think it's their job to feed the sheep and I mean their job to build the church and that it's somebody else's job, usually an untrained, uneducated Sunday school teacher, to somehow feed the sheep. They've got it all backwards. 
and that's not our philosophy of ministry here at all. My job is to feed the sheep, to teach them the word, and then I just trust that God, that Christ is going to build his church and bless us in whatever way uh, he desires. So Jesus says he is the one who will build his church. Second, we see in English the word will. This represents the future tense of the verb. Will build. I will build. It's not present. He doesn't say, I am building. He doesn't say, I build in a present tense. He says future tense. I will build. What that tells us is that the church did not exist at that point in time. The church had not existed up to that point in time. This tells us there is no church in the Old Testament. Now, that is very important because in the church age from the 3rd century on, you had the development of something that was that is called replacement theology with the development of allegorical interpretation what happened is that the literal meaning of Scripture was ignored and an uh, allegorical interpretation or spiritualized interpretation was developed and people read their own beliefs into the text, something called eisegesis, where you read your beliefs or your theology into the text because the literal text doesn't mean anything. And so in, in the by the end of the... Um, third century into the fourth century, the church meant spiritual Israel. And Israel in the Old Testament meant the church of the Old Testament. And so literal, physical Israel was taken out of the picture as something important today in God's plan. This led to what is called a replacement theology, which does not always end up in anti-Semitism, but it is the soil out of which anti-Semitism always grows. So sometimes it doesn't grow anything. It's kind of like my garden. I can fix the soil all I want to and never grow anything. Or sometimes it does, but you can't have the growth without the right kind of soil, and the soil of replacement theology is the soil out of which anti-Semitism will grow, and that is a rebellion against God. The essence of anti-Semitism is that God chose to use the Jewish people in his plan. And anti-Semitism says, God, we don't like your plan. We reject your authority to do that. We hate you, and we're going to do it another way. And so we're going to show our rejection of you by hating the people that you chose. That's the essence of anti-Semitism. It's a rebellion against God's choice. But in this church age, God did not permanently set aside Israel, but because of their rejection of the Messiah, he went to a previously unrevealed plan, and that is to develop a second people of God. And that's the church. It doesn't begin until the day of Pentecost in A.D. 33. It was not existent before. This is the most difficult passage for those in covenant theology and reformed theology and replacement theology to, to get past because Jesus makes it very clear the church isn't there yet. It's a future thing that he will do. I will build the church. The construction of the church 
through the present tense or the future tense of this verb is a process. He will build it over time. And that indicates that it has a specific beginning and it has a specific ending. The beginning was when the Holy Spirit descended on the day of Pentecost in A.D. 33, and it ends with the rapture of the church. Then he says, I will build my church. The significance of, of my is that we are Christ. We in the church are Christ. He is the Savior. He is the head of the body and he is the future groom of the church, which is called the Bride of Christ. He is the one who builds his church. And then we come to the word church. The word church refers to a distinctive group of people, a distinctive people of God, a new assembly that is comprised of all believers since Pentecost in A.D. 33, that are alive are already with with the Lord. This is also referred to as the universal church, and it is composed of Jews and Gentiles and ethnicity, as Paul says in Ephesians 3, 24, 25, and 26, ethnicity is no longer a spiritual distinctive, that there is neither Jew nor Greek, bond nor slave, male or female, in the body of Christ. Now, that doesn't mean that a Gentile isn't a Gentile anymore and a Jew isn't a Jew anymore. It means that a slave was automatically set free because uh, you read Philemon, you realize that Onesimus, the slave, was a, was a believer. But when he became a believer, he wasn't set f- free from being a slave. Those distinctives are still there, but under the Mosaic law, uh, Gentiles... Women and slaves were limited in how close they could get to God in the tabernacle or the temple. They were restricted to the court of the Gentiles, the court of the women, and so none of these groups could have access to God. But in Christ, these are no longer distinctives, and every believer is a priest unto God and has equal access to God through our high priest the Lord Jesus Christ. And so these are the uh, five things that Jesus is emphasizing when he makes this statement, I will build my church. Now next time we'll come back and we'll start to look exactly and precisely at the meaning of this word church and what we learn from that. And we will develop a few more things before we get back directly into our passage in Ephesians 2.11 with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Our Father, we're thankful for all that you've done for us. When we contemplate the work of Christ, what happened on the cross, when he was nailed to that cross, and for three hours he suffered under the darkness as he is spiritually separated from you, as our sins are imputed to him on the cross, We realize to some degree, though not nearly comprehensively or fully, but we realize to some degree the horror that he felt as as he screams out to you, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That he was judicially separated from you during that time as he who knew no sin was made sin for us. 
Father, we recognize that in this age that believers are in a unique, distinct relationship with you because we are in Christ. And with that position in him, we have been given an incredible number of blessings. We have been enriched and empowered because of our position in Christ. And we have a unique destiny because of our position in Christ. And we need to live in light of that. We are a remarkable new creation. And we need to live in light of our new identity in Christ. But, Father, we know that there may be some who may listen to this message and they've never trusted in Christ as their Savior. They've never understood the gospel that Christ died for our sins and that he provided a full payment for our sins so that there's nothing that we can add to it. And when they come to understand that, then they will trust in Christ as their Savior because he died for each one of us. He died for you. He died for them. He died for all of us. So if you've never trusted in Christ as Savior, that is the point. Christ died for you, for everyone. All that is necessary is for you to believe in Christ. Now, Father, we pray that you would make this clear in the lessons we learned today, very clear to each one of us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.